Martha Panchali translates from Bengali into English as Song of the Road. However, its journey to the screen was marked by so many challenges, setbacks, instances of luck, and astonishing coincidences, it could just as well have been called Song of Miracles. Although held as one of cinema's most enduring achievements, it was in fact the very first film Satyajit Ray ever made. Here is the great master himself in 1985, explaining to fellow filmmaker Sham Benegal his efforts at fundraising. You see, I had to go from door to door to various distributors and producers to tell them the story in order to interest them so that they would put up money. I did a book of drawings of the film, of frames, fairly uh, elaborately done in wash, black and white. And I would uh, tell them the story and at the same time show them the uh, drawings. Most of the dialogue came from the book. I didn't know how to write dialogue. I didn't have any confidence as a dialogue writer at that point. But fortunately, Bibhutibhushan wrote very lifelike dialogue. Patha Panchali was adapted from the book of the same name, published in 1929 by Bengali author Bhubuti Bhushan Bandyopadhyay. Just as it was Ray's first film, Patha Panchali was Bandyopadhyay's first novel. As for Ray, he was the son of revered poet and dramatist Sukhima Ray, who also authored several classic stories for children. By the time Satyajit graduated from college in the early 1940s, India was home to the world's largest film industry. While the vast majority of its productions centred around mythological tales dominated by great spectacle, song and dance filmed on sound stages, Prathapanchali told a very slender, very real story of a Brahmin family living on the edge of poverty in rural Bengal. Here is Saudi filmmaker and former head of production at the BFI, Mamoon Hassan, talking in 1990 about the relationship Ray had with Indian cinema. Ray felt very isolated from it. He didn't like its artificiality and escapist nature. He felt much more in sympathy with the works of European directors such as Renoir, whom he considered his principal mentor, and early De Sica. On a lighter note, uh, he advised Indian filmmakers to look to De Sica and not to De Mille for inspiration. But he's not a European director, he's a profoundly Indian director, specifically Bengali. Adding to the film's near miracles, Ray's cinematographer, Subrata Mitra, was just 21 years old and had never operated a film camera before production. Likewise, Subrata Banerjee, who played the little boy Apu, had never acted before and had only been spotted playing in the neighbourhood by Ray's wife, Bejoya. Production began tentatively in 1952, but with Ray drawing on his own savings to finance the picture, filming regularly stalled. In all, production lasted three years, and whether filming or not, Ray became very concerned that young Banerjee would experience a growth spurt. He was also anxious about the actress who played Apu's grandaunt, Chunibala Devi. At the time, the average life expectancy in India was 41. When Devi was cast, she was 80. And yet, she defied statistics and lived beyond the shoot long enough to see the finished film. Throughout production, Ray did not direct from a conventional script, instead using pictures he drew himself to show the cast and crew what he wanted. Here is sociologist and author Sushmita Dasgupta speaking on Indian cable network LSTV to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the film's release. See, he was an illustrator and he comes from a family which was almost the pioneer in the invention of printing technology right. as well as of the photograph. So therefore, I think that he has some kind of a responsibility mm. in using these technologies to rewrite the novels which already exist.
So I think that you know the kind of uh, paintings which people do, they click a photograph and then they use colors on it. His, his art was basically that, I mean he already used a photograph which was the novel hmm. and then he used his own camera which, was he, which he treated as to be his own brush, his own paint brush hmm. and redid those kinds of works. In fact, when Banjo Bajaj's novel was reprinted in the 1940s, it was Ray who was commissioned to provide the illustrations. It was this assignment that convinced him that the novel had very strong cinematic elements. Another serendipitous event occurred when, in 1950, Jean Renoir travelled to India to adapt Rumer Gauden's 1946 novel, The River. Ray met Renoir while he was filming, a friendship developed, and Renoir sponsored Ray's trip to London, where he gorged on Western cinema, immersing himself not just in Hollywood product from the likes of Ernst Lubitsch, Billy Wilder and John Ford, but also the Italian neorealists, Roberto Rossellini's Rome Open City, Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves, and Luchino Visconti's La Terra Trema. Back in India, Ray began filming, and then he had another chance encounter, this time with Hollywood director John Huston. Huston was still basking in the glow of having won two Oscars for his masterful adaptation of B. Traven's anti-capitalist adventure, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Oh, 25,000 is plenty as far as I'm concerned. Enough to last me out the rest of my lifetime. Well, sure, you're old. I'm young. I need dough and plenty of it. 25,000 in one piece is more than I ever expected to get my hands on. Small potatoes. Well, there's no use making hogs of ourselves. Hog, am I? Maybe you don't know it, but I'd be within my rights if I demanded half again as much as you get. How come? Well, there's no denying I put up the lion's share of the cash, is there? So you did, Dobbsy. And I always meant to pay you back. Yeah, in any civilized place, the biggest investor gets the biggest return, don't he? Houston was visiting India, scouting locations for his planned adaptation of Rudyard Kipling's The Man Who Would Be King, a production on which the cameras would not roll for another 20 years. Houston had been inspired to make The Treasure of the Sierra Madre on location in Mexico because of his exposure to Italian neorealism. Arriving in Calcutta, Houston was introduced to Ray, who, for the meeting, arranged to screen a brief sequence he had already filmed. The moment when Apu's sister, Durka, played by Uma Dasgupta, takes him on a journey to see a passing train. Houston was very impressed, not least because of how Ray was able to convey Apu's sense of wonder. But more importantly, because the entire sequence had no sound mix. What Houston had seen was completely silent. Clearly, Ray's illustrations had not only conveyed to his crew how he wanted the events to be staged, but had also instilled in his cast the very feeling he wanted to communicate. And yet, Ray himself was unsatisfied with a lot of what he'd been doing. Here he is again with Benegal. If we shot the film in sequence, mm. starting with the early parts and going on uh, chronologically. Yes, yes. So the early part shows a lot of, there are a lot of rough edges in the early part. Yes. In the cutting, in the shooting, in everything, in acting, everything. Mm. We learned filmmaking through the process of making Pasta Patel. We knew nothing. We were most of us new. And um, the final cut took, was done over a period of 10 days and 10 nights, How working all the time, yes. because we had a deadline to catch. Mm. I feel that the second half is distinctly better made than the first half. You can yes. see it. Ray was rushed to get the film finished because he'd been contacted by the Museum of Modern Art in New York, requesting he send them the completed film. 
MoMA had been contacted by John Houston when he heard that they were organising a major exhibition, Textiles and Ornamental Arts in India, for the spring of 1955. Houston informed them that a major film and a major filmmaker was about to emerge from India. Funds were sourced in New York to help finish editing in time, which is how Pathapanchali's world premiere came to take place on May 3, 1955, not in Calcutta, but in Manhattan. However, Ray had been under such pressure to complete the film that he had completely overlooked the need for subtitles. The same calamity was repeated at the British premiere. Here is Pamela Cullen, then Social Secretary to VK Krishna Menon, India's High Commissioner in London. The film literally came off the, off the train with me. <laughs> I rushed it to the viewing theatre and just before the screening started, the projectionist came down into the audience and tapped me on the shoulder and said, I don't know whether you know, but there are no subtitles. Oh, really? <laughs> well, I practically died. I thought, my goodness me, and I hadn't seen the film at that point. So I had no idea how this film would work yes. without subtitles. So I got up and I said to the audience that um, I'm very sorry that this film has been rushed to Calcutta, and by mistake they've sent the unsubtitled one. Despite the absence of subtitles, Patha Panchali was rapturously received, with Ray fated as a major new talent. Which only showed once again the good fortune that seems to have protected the film from the beginning. Even though almost no one in either of those audiences could understand the dialogue, what they could understand was the music. Ray had commissioned Ravi Shankar to do the score. But because of Shankar's touring commitments, he had precious little time to deliver, and he ended up composing, performing and recording the soundtrack in a hectic 11-hour session. And as if that were not complicated enough, when Shankar came into the studio, he had only seen about half of the film, and even then, only in a roughly edited version. Which meant that Ray frequently asked Shankar to do small pieces for specific sequences Shankar had not yet seen. But Shankar did know the novel, and Ray was able to show him his illustrations. So, upon request, Shankar would quickly work out a melody right then and there, his ideas feverishly transcribed into Indian notation and dealt out to the musicians. Following May at the Cannes Film Festival, Patapanchali was honoured with a specially minted award, the Best Human Document. That does not mean, however, that everyone was accepting of its virtues. François Truffaut, then a revered and deeply feared critic, walked out of the screening declaring, I'm not interested in seeing films about peasants eating with their hands. Here is former critic for The Guardian, Derek Malcolm. Later, Truffaut denied that he walked out, although he did. Uh, realised that it was a great film. Um, the French regard it as a film of total purity. So, what makes Patapanchali so pure? Let us begin with Supertramitra's cinematography. His genius becomes evident as the film goes on. And indeed, as he and Ray continued the story in two later films, The World of Apu, and Aparajito, 
Mitra revolutionized cinematography. Through his use of bounce boards, he would deliver a beguiling, shadowless image. Instead of the classical Hollywood three-point lighting scheme, Mitra's bounce boards would spray light evenly out across the screen. It would provide audiences with a new way of seeing actors. Which feeds into the real reason why Pat Panchali is so pure. Usually what we see in a movie is a film star, which means the screen functions as a mirror for our own desires. But Ray intuited that it is not so important who is seen on screen, as much as it is what they are feeling. That feeling engenders empathy to the point that although today we are 60 years, continents and cultures apart, we are connected. A humanist, Ray simply gorged over the minutia of human behaviour, investing in the smallest of incidents and the minutest of gestures, accumulating them to present a portrait of the human family. Kinship, pity, resilience, kindness, hope, superstition, fear, love. Ray's screen was a canvas of emotion, bringing us together into one shared space. Undoubtedly, one of the most indelible moments in all of cinema occurs in Pathapanchali when Durka takes Apu to see the train. The great machine represents not only modernity, but Apu's awakening of a world far beyond his experience, and even more importantly, the possibility of one day his going to see that world. But while that experience is an epiphany for Apu, for me there are few sustained passages in all of cinema that can equal the sequence that begins with Durka and Apu once again out on a small adventure. The clouds open, and while Apu retreats under a canopy of trees for shelter, Durka decides to embrace the deluge, reveling in the sensation of the raindrops on her skin. But the rains put Durka in a fever, the clouds become a storm, and she is left fighting for her life. As the storm rages, Durka succumbs, leaving her mother, played by Karuna Banerjee, with the devastation. Her husband, played by Kanu Banerjee, has been away, and when he finally returns, he finds the house has been ruined by the typhoon. In her agony, mother struggles to tell father what has happened. But instead of using mere words, Ray uses Shankar's music to express the sorrow. Ray handles the emotion with such integrity that we come to accept the grief as another song on the road of life. Ray himself had suffered a trauma as a child, losing his father when he was just two years old. Sukumar Ray was a giant of Bengali literature, and his sudden death at the age of 35 left his young family in straitened circumstances. But his widow, Superba, rallied, saving her meagre income to ensure her only child, Satyajit, got an education and went on to university. Fortune, misfortune, resilience, hope, contemplation, action, solitude, community. It was all there in Ray's life and he put it all on screen. So perhaps Prathapanchali was not a miracle after all, instead an expression of human endeavour and resilience. But there is one thing that should never be overlooked. Five years before Ray embarked on the film, 
at just two minutes after midnight on August the 15th, 1947, India secured independence from Britain, thus seeing the single largest emancipation of peoples in the history of the world. And without question, Pratapanchali is a child of that freedom. Thank you.